Welcome to another episode of The Word in the Glass. I'm your host, Micah, and today we are back with another installment of our From the Pulpit to the Podcast series, where Stefan takes us through some of his more timely and often more difficult sermons. Thank you all for joining us. I hope and pray that you are both encouraged and edified by the message today. I need to keep you all in the loop here. We currently have two The Word and the Glass podcast channels. One is called The Word and the Glass. The other is called The Word and the Glass podcast. This is not really something that you'd notice on the front end, but it's going to be very important here soon as The Word and the Glass channel The one with the white and red logo will be disappearing soon. We have switched podcast hosts, and that one will be going away in just a few weeks. This is nerve-wracking for me because 75% of our listeners are currently listening to that channel. So please, before September 1st, go find the Word and the Glass podcast. This logo is orange and black and has an image of hands holding a Bible. Make sure when you search that you use an ampersand instead of the word and. This is very important to find the new channel. So it's the word ampersand the glass podcast. If you search that, you should have no trouble finding it. Simply follow that one and unfollow the old one and you'll be good to go. And we won't lose 75% of our current listenership. Go follow us on Instagram to keep up with everything that we have going on. I will be posting reminders and how-tos as we get closer to September. Okay, let's go now to Stefan for Sodom and Gomorrah Part 2, From the Pulpit to the Podcast. Sodom and Gomorrah Part 2 Last week, we saw the destructive effect that sin has on a society, how it compounds, spreading like a virus, never content, but always growing from lesser to greater sins until it permeates every section of the culture. We first saw this pattern in the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the culture had downgraded so far into depravity that the sin of sodomy had become not only universally accepted, but universally practiced. We were then able to draw direct parallels to our own cultural situation, in which sodomy has become widely celebrated, and perhaps revealed even deeper levels of depravity by essentially denying the very existence of God-assigned gender. We know that gender roles were thrown out some time ago, but now the biological reality of male and female are rejected as well. These are the most foundational realities of God's creation. They are Genesis chapter 1 truths. You can't get much more foundational, morally speaking, than recognizing that there is such a thing as male and female. That knowledge is part of God's general revelation. You can go to the most remote, unreached tribe, and they might not be able to tell you very much about God, but they can tell you that he made two genders, and that they are different. And they know that simply from general revelation, from examining creation. But we here in Western society have the clarity of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he created them. So not only do we have eyes with which we can plainly see the truths of the very created order, but God goes to the trouble of explaining it to us. And even still, our society says, there is no difference. What a depraved mindset. We must keep ourselves from such a mindset. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 warns us, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. I like how the NASB puts it. 
have nothing to do with worldly fables. With today's episode, I want to encourage us to guard our minds and the minds of our kids from worldly fables. I think you'd agree that if anyone has had a need to examine themselves in this regard, it's our generation. What other generation has had worldliness thrust upon them as we have? No longer is sin something consumed in darkness, but something broadcast directly into our homes and into our pockets. It's like standing in the rain trying not to get wet. We have certainly been affected in multiple ways, perhaps even unknowingly. So, we need to examine ourselves. We can do that today by learning from the mistakes of others. Genesis chapter 19 is full of people who had the need for self-examination. Each one, to some extent, had been impacted by worldliness. So, what I want to do is pick up where we left off last episode. You remember from last time that God had appeared to Abraham along with two angels. He then shared his plan to protect his covenant by destroying the morally depraved people of Sodom and Gomorrah. From there, God sends two angels to observe the state of the city firsthand. Upon arrival, they meet Abraham's nephew, Lot, and go to his house for the night. But after they prepared for bed, a mob consisting of every man in the city came demanding that they be permitted to lay with the angelic beings. After chastisement from Lot, the crowd is struck with blindness by the angels of the Lord. And this is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 19, verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Last episode, I referenced a book 
which helped bring sodomy into American culture. This week, I want to reference a book which attempted to bring sodomy into the church. And in some cases, it was successful. This book is entitled, God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines is a Harvard graduate from Wichita, Kansas. And his book, released in 2014, was widely received by mainline Christian groups. And a significant gay-affirming church movement occurred in its wake. Here are some quotes from the book which summarize Vine's argument. Vine says, Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relationships. Once this is accepted, the fiercest objections to LGBT equality, those based on religious beliefs, can begin to fall away. The tremendous pain endured by LGBT youth in many Christian homes can become a relic of the past. Christianity's reputation in much of the Western world can begin to rebound. Together, we can reclaim our light. I'm sure we have all heard this argument, that same-sex relationships are not sinful, as long as they're monogamous, and that all this negative press the church is getting over the issue of gay marriage can fall away, and the Western world can re-embrace the church once again. The only problem with that, well, there are multiple problems with that, but the first is that the world and the church will never be reconciled because the world is diametrically opposed to the church. Jesus says in John 15, verse 19, I choose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. There is no reconciling the church and the world. We have seen churches who compromise, who follow the advice of Matthew Vines, and did it reconcile them to the world? No. The world always wants more. They will never be satisfied. The second issue with the view Matthew Vines presents is that there is no biblical support for the sanctity of monogamous same-sex relationships. God's design for sexual union isn't just a set of prohibitions, meaning that we aren't just told what marriage shouldn't be. But in Scripture, God clearly presents what marriage should be. And the picture is not simply a monogamous relationship between two people. But the image of marriage is explicitly a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. It's plain in the created order. God created man, and then he created woman for man. We are told in Ephesians 5 that this is a picture of Christ and the church. Verses 22 and 25 say, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Same-sex relationships even monogamous ones, can never display the very reality marriage was meant to depict. Shall Christ be the head of Christ? Or the church be the head of the church? This is a distortion of the very foundation of the marriage union. And therefore, it's unacceptable. When it comes down to it, the book, God and the Gay Christian, and the movement that followed it, was merely an attempt to bring the world into the church, to justify churches who fly the pride flag alongside the Christian flag. But bringing the world into the church is like bringing water into a ship. All it can do is sink it. The church must boldly stand in opposition to the corruption of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 tells us to be on guard. You'll remember the incremental growth of sin from the last episode. How sin is never content, but always progressing, wanting more and more. Think back with me to the humble beginnings of Lot's sin starting in Genesis chapter 13, 
when Abraham looks out across the promised land and tells Lot to choose east or west. Whichever you choose, he says, will be yours, and I will go the other way. Which did Lot choose? Well, he chose east. And this is telling. What does it say was Lot's reason for choosing east? Verse 10 tells us, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. It was profitable. There was much to be gained from going east, which is fine, except for the fact that Lot's desire for earthly gain distracted him from the apparent risk of moving east. You see, Lot settled in the direction of Zoar, which is just outside the city of Sodom. And we are assured in Genesis chapter 13 that Lot did not settle in Sodom, but just outside of Sodom. It says Lot set up his tent near Sodom. Lot, however, didn't stay near Sodom for long. The lure of sin is strong. And before he knew it, Genesis 14 verse 12 tells us that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. I assume Lot had grown accustomed to the abundance the Jordan Valley provided. And dealing with Sodom would have been the easiest way to maintain that wealth. So just like abundance contributed to the moral downgrade of Sodom, it likewise led to Lot's compromise. And Lot's compromise didn't stop there. We next see Lot in Genesis chapter 19 verse 1. Here we are told that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Notice the emphasis here. As the angels entered Sodom, who is the first person they run into? Lot. Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom. I need to explain that a bit. You see, Lot isn't sitting at the gate because it's a nice place to sit. What we should understand by this is that Lot is a city official. He's a gatekeeper of Sodom. So Lot has progressed from living near Sodom to living in Sodom to now holding a public office in Sodom. The infectiousness of the world is displayed in the story of Lot. He was overcome by the world. And here is the scary part. He knew the truth. He wasn't an unenlightened pagan like the others in Sodom. Lot was there when Abraham was called by God. He knew what happened in Egypt. He saw how God had rescued him using just 318 men. Lot knew the power of God. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 refers to Lot as a righteous man, that he was still a casualty of worldliness. Or I guess we can say nearly a casualty of worldliness, but would have been a casualty of worldliness if God had not so actively interceded to save him. Lot isn't the only one in the story to be led astray by the sinful society of Sodom. Aside from God, Abraham, and the two angels, every other person is led astray to some extent by sinful passions. Everyone is given over to some level of worldliness. And what I want to do is categorize them into three groups. These category titles are somewhat arbitrary because there is a lot of overlap between them. But I mainly want to communicate the different levels of worldliness that we see in this story. So the first is conformity to the world. This is someone who is beginning to think like the world. They adopt the popular worldview, and it affects their decision-making. Next is loving the world. This would be someone who has grown comfortable with the way the world operates. They fear the difficulty which comes from obedience to God. The last is worship of the world. This is someone who would give everything over for their worldly pleasures. They have given their bodies over to dishonorable passions. 
Those are the three categories that I see in Genesis 19. And those will be three points for us to examine today. But now, before we get into talking about each of these, what I want us to do is I want us to define worldliness. And I'll just do it quickly here because I think we already have an idea from last week's episode. But I really like this short definition from Kevin DeYoung. DeYoung says, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I'll repeat it. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Satan is the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And one of his ploys is to present sin as normal and righteousness as strange. So that is what we mean when we speak of worldliness, a reversal of sin and righteousness, where righteousness is seen as a vice and sin is seen as a virtue. Now as Christians, we've been given a command, a command meant to restore us from the mind-blinding worldliness of Satan. That command comes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Slowly but surely, Lot was conformed to this world. His mind was blinded by sin, and he compromised with Sodom. Now, I'll ask you the question. We know that Lot had not given himself fully over to the corruption of Sodom. In fact, when the mob came to his door, he confronted them about their sin calling it wicked. Even so, do you think that Lot was unaffected by his interaction with Sodom? I think that there is a lot of evidence that Lot had been affected significantly by his time in Sodom. The first red flag I see is his willingness to offer his virgin daughters to be raped in order to appease the angry mob. Genesis chapter 19 verses 6 through 8. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. There's no context in which this decision is not sinful. Instead, it displays Lot's moral detachment. The fact that he even considers this, let alone actually offers it to them, shows that his thinking has been affected by the sexualized culture of Sodom. And don't think for a minute that this environment and even the actions of their father has not affected the mindset of Lot's daughters. They have grown up within the walls of Sodom. They are engaged to marry men of Sodom. They have been offered by their father as sexual satisfaction to a Sodomite mob. This has certainly affected their thinking. And that becomes apparent in Genesis 19 verses 31 and 32. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. Lot's daughters go on to carry out this scheme. And in the end, both sisters commit incest with their intoxicated father. And in this, their conformity to the world is made manifest. Lot did not protect his children from the worldly ways of Sodom, and there were consequences for that. Now, they aren't the only ones affected by the worldliness of Sodom. As we said, nearly everyone in the story is affected in some way by worldliness. And the next illustration we see is the love of the world. Look with me at John 1, chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see a couple different characters who show that they have a love for the world and its practices. First, we see Lot's sons-in-law. God grants them to be saved along with Lot's family. But when Lot goes to warn them, they show that they don't even have a category in their thinking for God's judgment. Genesis chapter 19 verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. The wrath of God was like a joke to them. They were so vested in their sin, it was so normal to them, that they couldn't imagine that God would pour out his wrath upon their city. They were in love with the world, and they were destroyed with it. A second character that displays this love for the world, and probably the most notable, is Lot's wife. Genesis chapter 19, verse 17, and verse 26. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. The idea expressed here isn't simply that she looked over her shoulder as she ran away, but instead that she lingered. She turned to watch the city that she loved be destroyed. Her reluctance to obey the command of God in full led to her punishment. And as we know, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Lot's wife is used as a reminder for us in the New Testament. Luke chapter 17, verses 32 and 33. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Like Lot, like his wife, and his family, God has given us a command. Abandon the way of the world, and instead, do the will of God. Now we come to our last point, and we take it up a level once again. In Sodom, we saw those who conformed to the world. We saw those who loved the world. And finally, we look at those who worshipped the world. Romans chapter 1, verses 18-26 through 26. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This text gives us an outline for the sin progression of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had become futile in their thinking. They had traded the truth for a lie, and they worshipped things of this world rather than the creator of this world. Thus, God gave them over to their sins. We often debate about whether or not the sin of sodomy carries a harsher judgment than other sins. Many ask, why do Christians make a big deal about this sin? Isn't it the same as any other sin? What they fail to realize is that it isn't that homosexuality elicits a greater judgment from God. It is that the sin of homosexuality is the judgment of God. The text said, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The sins of our culture have been committed. And as Christians, when we see the rise of the LGBTQ plus movement, we should feel as if we are seeing the result of our society's cumulative guilt. We should see idolatry, greed, adultery, immodesty, abortion, drunkenness, divorce, pornography, and the list goes on. Being given over to unnatural sexual practices is a judgment. And that's a pretty gloomy diagnosis for our culture. But remember, that is a judgment. This isn't the end of the judgment. It does get worse. The judgment doesn't stop with unnatural sexual relationships. But there comes a day when the common grace of God expires. Luke 17, verse 28 through 30. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The sin of all humanity will reach its culmination in destruction, just as it did with Sodom and Gomorrah. What can Christians do in a situation like this? How can we escape the judgment of God? How can we flee the temptation of this world? How can we find refuge like Lot did? Look with me at John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. He did not give in, but fully obeyed every command from the Father. But what does this mean for us? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So in Christ, we have overcome the world by our faith, which I think that is something that we can all say amen to, but at the same time, have no practical idea how to apply that text. Like, how do we overcome the world by our faith? What does that look like? Well, thankfully, we can back up to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, and it tells us exactly what that looks like. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Here is the practical application. The effect of our faith is twofold. It helps us in two ways. Faith allows you to see sin for what it is, and faith allows you to see Jesus for who He is. And the result is that the commands of Christ are not burdensome. When you are granted faith, your mindset is altered. No longer are you blinded by the God of this world, but instead you see truth. You see that sin is wicked and that Jesus is glorious. I've heard John Piper say that it's like being in the dark 
and you're holding on to something you think is precious. You don't want to let it go, but then the light comes on and you see it's a cockroach and you drop it as fast as you can. That's what happens when you receive the gift of faith from God. You realize that the sin you loved is deadly and that the Savior you hated is precious. And thus, His commands are no longer burdensome to you. But I know that you're thinking that sometimes obedience does feel burdensome. Sometimes sin is so compelling that you don't know if you can resist it. Like a pig who has been washed, you want to return to the mud and you feel like it's burdensome. First off, there is grace in the fact that you know your desires are sinful. You are no longer deceived into thinking that they are virtuous as the world does, but instead you see them as sin to overcome. That's a result of grace in your life. But then secondly, it is true that your mind is prone to wander back into worldly lies. But you have the luxury of thwarting such burdensome thoughts by the truth of the Word of God. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13-16. through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So, while you are in this world, there is the possibility that your mind can be conformed to your former worldly ignorance, and that you would begin to tolerate sin once more. But God has called you to resist that temptation and instead to pursue obedience by the renewing of your mind, by setting your mind on the revelation of Jesus Christ. We spoke in the last episode about how pervasive sin is in our society. Do you think that one message is enough to combat the influence of the world on your mind? No. You've got to prepare your minds for action. You need to be studying the Bible on your own every day. If any group of Christians was committed to overcoming worldliness, it was the Puritans. They did away with everything in their life that drew their minds to the world and away from Christ. Rejecting the extravagance, which not only defined the Catholic Church, but also the Anglican High Church model as well. The Puritans' church buildings didn't have stained glass, nor did it have the lavish decoration. The pulpit on which the Word of God sat was the focal point. Likewise, Puritan ministers wore a plain black robe so as not to draw attention to themselves. They went so far as even rejecting wedding rings because in their words, rings just seemed too popish. But in all of this, the Puritans had a purpose. The Puritan theologian John Owen explains their reasoning. He says, We all profess that we are bound for heaven, immortality, and glory. But is it any evidence that we really desire it if all our thoughts are consumed about the trifles of this world, which we must leave behind, and have only occasional thoughts of things above? Even if we don't live exactly as the Puritans did, we should heed their example by not allowing our minds to be consumed with worldly thoughts, which downgrade into love of the world and eventually worship of the world. But instead, we should follow Paul's command in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. All right, 
Let's review what we've discussed. Genesis 19 is full of people who lived in Sodom and therefore had been influenced by the world. We saw Lot slowly enticed by the abundance offered by Sodom. He moved near Sodom and then into Sodom and then became the gatekeeper of Sodom. This compromise wasn't without consequence. Although Lot was considered a man of righteousness, nevertheless, his thinking had been skewed by Sodom and he began to conform to the way of the world. This was evident in his offering of his daughters to sexually appease the mobs, as well as his lingering in Sodom after the angels had told him to flee. We also saw the effects of worldliness in Lot's sons-in-law and his wife. Lot's sons-in-law couldn't even imagine God judging the actions of their city. They had no category for such events and believed Lot to be joking. Lot's wife fled with Lot at the command of God, but then stopped to look back upon the city that she loved. As a result, she was destroyed with it, turned into a pillar of salt. Finally, we saw the most advanced effects of worldliness manifest in the people of Sodom. They had pursued sin to the point that they were handed over by God to unnatural sexual practices. This was a sign of God's judgment for their multitude of sins. In the end, they faced the ultimate judgment in God's fiery destruction. This all acts as an illustration for us, an illustration of the severity of worldliness, an illustration of the coming judgment of God, and an illustration of our need to seek refuge in the one who has overcome the world. In 1 Peter, we are reminded that we are sojourners in a land that is not our home. For this reason, we are called to abstain from the passions of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 reminds us that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. But now, if I could conclude with a closing exhortation, one ditch we could fall into is isolationism, right? What better way to avoid the world than to completely exclude ourselves from dealings with the world? But that's not the call that we've been given. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays these words, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We have been commissioned by Jesus to be in this world, but not of this world. To engage the world for the sake of the gospel, but not to be conformed to this world. Not to love this world, and certainly not to worship the things of this world. Let us intercede for the lost in this world, just as Abraham interceded for Lot. Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. In our case, God remembers Jesus and therefore rescues us from the destruction of the world. Let us likewise intercede for those in the world that they too might experience the same escape. And we pray with the Apostle Paul. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Glorious state of mind 
As your blood flowed like a spring, unbearable pain with no stopping. Oh Lord, you opened your arms and bore our sin. Became a curse on the cross for all of us. You paid a price we couldn't pay with your perfect life. Oh, I believe this is true, but I'm quick to forget. Kindness you've shown, the love you've bestowed upon me. Lord, help me to understand this, how I can deny you. From time to time, I'm falling down again. I'm falling down again. Why disgraceful and shameful? Why? Why, why, why am I so disgraceful, shameful, why, why, falling away, pull me back, as sorrow falls on me, as time pass me by, grab my hands, pull me up, I've tried. My heart seems to grow so hard in this lonely world Change me, Lord, and make my heart anew I want to love like you I desperately dependent upon you Pride always get in the way of what you're trying to do with me, what you're gonna do. Oh, I know that I can't make it on my own. So why do I keep trying? Why do I keep trying on my Cause death is my gain And by your grace I'll never turn back You're doing a work in me And through the cross I've been set free Christ rose again And someday he's coming back He's coming
trusting in you, holding on to your truth, never letting go of the words you've spoken. There's nothing I can do, you always bring me through, nothing will ever be able to separate me. Your love is faithful and true, my only peace is in you, my strength in my heart and my soul and my mind and my everything. It's in you, Lord, it's in you, Lord, it's in you, Lord.